The views and opinions expressed on this program are those of the persons appearing on the program and do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of Longwood University or the Rotunda News Magazine. On this episode of The Real Life, it's time to dive into the April Fool's Day pranks that various entertainment companies pulled the past few days, talk about the trailers that have come out over the past weeks, and some slightly disturbing news coming out of Nickelodeon and with the Stranger Things producers. All that and more on this week's episode of The Real Life. Hello everybody, my name is Jacob and welcome back to The Real Life. Uh, As you all know, I am... A staff member on the Rotunda News Magazine for Longwood University, the student-run news magazine. I'm no longer an A&E staff member, though. I'm the assistant arts and entertainment editor. And for those who are some of our more perceptive listeners, as you can probably tell, this is a different setup from what we typically do. Unfortunately, some technical difficulties uh, happened this week uh, to where we can't record it on normal setup, which is why you hear a different mic uh, this time and a little bit of a hum in the background. I apologize. I can't do anything about the hum. Um, I can try to keep it as low as possible without sacrificing audio quality, but there's not really much I can do at the end of the day. Um, and Ray, unfortunately, cannot be with us as well. It's a double whammy this week, but it's perfectly fine. We got plenty of news to dive into this week, so still wanted to give all you folks out there a great episode. So, Here we go. First thing I want to do before we jump into the trailers this week is I wanted to go over um, April Fool's Day happened in between uh, our last episode and this one. So I wanted to go ahead and talk about some of my personal favorite April Fool's Day pranks or jokes that some of the various entertainment mediums pulled this past uh, April Fool's Day, um, starting with uh, the director of Shazam, uh, David, I believe it's David... F. Samberg. Um, that's a film that's been extremely highly anticipated by a lot of DC fans. It's been in development for a very, very long time. He posted on April Fool's Day on his Twitter page what looked to be the first official trailer for the show, when in, or for the film, when in reality it was a trailer with some fancy Warner Brothers and DC logos slapped on the end of some footage of the original TV show. Um, and some particularly awkward and uh, very dated footage at that. And some people got a laugh out of that. I myself did as well. And it was it was a good for a laugh. It was a nice, harmless April Fool's Day joke. Um, the next one, the PlayStation Asia Facebook account announced PlayStation, the board game, the video game. A board game based around the property of PlayStation where you compete to uh, gain trophies uh, or achievements uh, for layman's terms trophies are what achievements are referred to on the playstation network with different colored um dual shock four tokens and various trivia questions it, it was a very well put together um there's an image that if you just google playstation the board game april fools uh which is you can google any of these just the basic concept like shazam trailer april fools um and get the results that you're looking for to see images or links Um, And it was a pretty well-put-together mock-up of what could potentially be a real-life board game. And it was convincing 
people believed it, people thought it was cool. I myself saw a few of these and thought, you know what, I kind of want that. Uh, There's a few pranks or jokes on this list that I would definitely enjoy in real life. And this is one of them, because I'm a huge PlayStation fan. I've been a PlayStation fan for years and years and years. And it just looked like a product that if someone actually jumped into it and took it seriously, could be fairly enjoyable. Um, Next on the list, Funko, the company behind uh, the reaction figures, the Funko Pops mainly, uh, that's what they're most famous for, announced that that they were releasing a spray that would be guaranteed to protect your collector's edition boxes. All you had to do was spray it on the box of your Funko Pops, and it would protect the boxes for eternity. Obviously, this isn't true. They clearly got a kick out of this because they know how much people collect these pops. They know how many some people have. I myself don't have a huge number, but I've got a pretty decent number of pops underneath my belt, and I think a lot of people got a kick out of this one. Um, Next on the list, uh, a completely fake company. I don't know who was behind this. I couldn't find it. Couldn't figure it out. Um, Go VHS was launched on April Fool's Day as a new retro way to send video messages to your loved ones where you would take a camcorder, film yourself on a VHS tape, and send it to your relatives for a cool retro uh, way to send them a video message. In all reality, they're just poking fun at the fact of how quickly technology changes these days, how quickly those things tend to affect us. And with for a lighthearted, amusing April Fool's Day prank. That was pretty effective. Um, the website is hysterical. It looks exactly like one of those, like, like it's got the color palette and backgrounds and all those things of a bad 90s website. And it's, it's, it, it's definitely worth a look for a laugh. That's Go VHS. Um, next, a group of archaeolo- archaeologists, again, don't know who originated this one, announced that they discovered Porg Bones. Yes, Porg Bones from the hit film Star Wars The Last Jedi, the tiny little bird creatures. They announced that they discovered their bones. Obviously not true. Um, there's a little bit of an interesting truth to, behind this, though. Uh, the reason that the Porgs mainly exist is because the island that they were shooting uh, on scenes with Luke Skywalker in his home was covered in puffins. It was covered in puffin nests and puffin uh, birds. And since puffins are technically endangered, they couldn't really do anything to get rid of them. They couldn't, like, shoo them off. They're endangered. So they digitally altered some of them, eventually creating the porgs, initially just to be in the background, but eventually bringing them to the forefront for some moments of comedic scenes involving Chewbacca and just some nice little set dressing. So there's actually kind of a little bit of truth to this. Kind of. I guess you could technically find porg bones, but not really. Next on the list, Lin-Manuel Miranda announced on Twitter that he is writing a musical adaptation of The Room, the hit fil- hit in print in uh, quotes hit film by Tommy Wiseau who's announced he was adapting it into a musical which this is one of those that I know this is a joke and I know it would probably be a bad idea but I want to see this I want to see what this would be I would love to see just one song written by Lin-Manuel Miranda the Tony award-winning creator of Hamilton about the room I can only I cannot even begin to imagine 
what that would be like. And I kind of want to see it. I kind of want to hear a song for it because it sounds perfectly ridiculous. Uh, it sounds like a Saturday Night Live skit. Uh, in which case, uh, if anyone, Lauren Michaels, anyone from Saturday Night Live, you're listening, uh, get on that. You, you don't have to credit me for that idea. Just next time you got Lynn on, go ahead and use that one. My treat to you. Um, for the day, Pokemon Go switched to 8-bit graphics, uh, resembling the original Game Boy and Game Boy Color games uh, that started the Pokemon series, which is a nice little, it's a harmless April Fool's Day joke. No one's going to think that they're going to stay like that forever. They're not pitching a fake product. Um, Probably required the most amount of effort out of all of these just because you have to go in and make sure it works. Can't exactly have a glitch on it to where only half the people get it because that kind of defeats the purpose. But it's also a nice nod, a nice throwback to the original Pokemon games that started it all in the uh, 90s, that started the trading card craze, the, the TV show, the anime, the games. A nice little nod. Um, next, on April Fool's Day, Google Maps allowed you to play Where's Waldo. Kind of self-explanatory. When you're on the Google Maps site, you could look around for Waldo. I'm just looking around, trying to figure out where Waldo went, where he is. It's a self-explanatory, amusing little joke. Um, I hope they bring that one back, because uh, that would be pretty... I, I would like that. Um, fun fact, since we brought up Pokemon Go and since we brought up Google, a few years ago, for April Fool's Day, Google Maps uh, announced that you could search for Pokemon and find and catch Pokemon using the Google Maps app, which eventually came to be true a few years later when we got Pokemon Go. Everything's together. Everything's tied together. Everything's connected. Nothing nothing is uh, disconnected. Everything's together. Um, there was a Ferris Bueller's Day Off reboot or remake announced with Tom Holland starring as Ferris Bueller, the star of Spider-Man Homecoming, with Edgar Wright, the director of Shaun of the Dead, Hot Fuzz, The World's End, and Baby Driver, writing and directing it. This is one of those that, although I think Ferris Bueller's Day Off is a perfect film, I think it is a classic, and I don't think anyone could ever match up to the legendary status that it has uh, acclaimed itself. I personally think it's John Hughes' best film. I think it's better than Breakfast Club, personally. Um, While I understand that that film has a sort of legacy behind it and i don't want this to be true at the same time it's edgar wright and it's tom holland and i would love for this to be true so much so much would i love for this to be true unfortunately it's not and probably for the best it's not um here's another one that i hope just would have was true lego announced that they were making a vacuum cleaner that would when you sucked up a Lego with the vacuum cleaner, as anyone who owns Legos know, there's a very high chance of you to do so, it would sort the Lego in a separate container. That's genius. That's awesome. How has no one actually made this? I understand it would probably be very, very difficult to make something like that, but how is this not an idea that someone has actually made, has actually pitched before? This is so genius. It would save so many people so much time. It would save so much, so much grief from these kids wondering if the headpiece they found or they can't find got sucked up by the vacuum cleaner or not. This is a genius idea. Why does no one do this? Why has no one done this? And the very last thing, uh, this is not the very last April Fool's Day prank, obviously, that was played 
by any company. This is just the very last one that I wanted to mention I found notable. And it's, again, one that I kind of wanted to be true. Press Start Australia, a video game journalism website from Australia, tweeted that Mushroom Kingdom Battle Royale would be coming to the Switch. I want this game to be real so badly. It would be awesome. I can just imagine running around a huge map with various different... You could, Hey, Nintendo, you're not doing anything with the Miis right now. Throw the Miis in there. Give me a Mii Battle Royale, for crying out loud. Like, like throw them into a big map based around uh, one of the uh, bomb Battlefield from Mario 64. Throw them into a galaxy-themed map. Throw them into Yoshi's Island map. Like, this could be genius. This could be awesome. Why is this not a thing? Why is this not a thing? Like, that's awesome. And just copy, just reuse the weapons from Mario Plus Rabbids. Like, they're already, you got it. Like, this could, Nintendo, make this, please. Make this for the love of, like, everything. Make this game. This is awesome. All right. And that's, uh, that's the end of the April Fool's Day pranks, things like that. Now, it's time to move on to the... Uh, to the to my personal favorite part of the podcast, we're going to talk about the trailers. First trailer on the list is Night School. Um, new comedy coming out starring Kevin Hart, uh, Tiffany Haddish. I think that, yes, that's, how, that's her name, Tiffany Haddish. Um, it looks like your typical, like, fish out of water, guys got to resort to... The, guy's got to go to a last resort kind of thing to make up for what he's missed out on to be a better person that kind of thing um kevin hart plays a uh, very confident salesman his initial introduction in the trailer is quite funny um selling grills just like a barbecue salesman and uh through ways that i will not spoil from the trailer he ends up needing to go back to high school to get his ged he goes back to high school to get his GED with a bunch of other misfits, adults who never graduated. And the principal is, oh my God, what is his name? He's from Saturday Night Live. I cannot think of it. I cannot think of his name. But he's a, for anyone who watched Saturday Night Live, he's immediately recognizable face. Um, he's the principal. Tiffany Haddish is the teacher who's teaching the GED class. She and Kevin Hart butt heads. And it looks like you're, it looks like your typical average Hollywood kind of comedy uh, where you got the two opposing sides that butt heads, shenanigans ensue. The one thing that makes me op- like really optimistic about this is the fact that it's from the director of Girls Trip, which was an absolutely unexpectedly hysterical film. That it, was, it was so, so funny and just unexpectedly so. And I will admit... I have kind of softened on the idea of studio comedies recently with Game Night really kind of surprising me and how well it was made and how much I enjoyed it. And then Blockers this past weekend really surprising me. Both reviews for Game Night and Blockers can be found on the therotundaonline.com. That's the therotundaonline.com in the arts and entertainment section. Just look for the real life colon Game Night or the real life colon Blockers. Anyway, my point is I've softened and become a little bit more optimistic on the idea of a big studio comedy especially when it's someone who has clearly done good work before, like I said, the director of Girls Trip. So while the trailer looks kind of average with some average jokes, a few that are pretty good that get some laughs here and there, 
oh, the Jesus Chicken uh, restaurant is a particular amusing gag that I, trust me, that brief description does not do it justice. Um, but it's, it's, I'm optimistic about it. It looks like it has potential to be pretty good. Um, next, how to talk to girls, how to talk to girls at parties. Now, the director, no, I was going to say the director of this one has slipped my mind, but it is not. Uh, directed by John Cameron Mitchell, who wrote and directed and starred in the original film version of Hedwig and the Angry Inch, and worked on the Broadway version of Hedwig and the Angry Inch. That is just a gorgeous, amazing musical that you should definitely see if you have not already is directing this film adaptation of a short story by Neil Gaiman that's basically about these kids. They want to go out. They want to party. They want to meet girls, as you can probably tell from the title. And they go to this house, and it's full of these, like, weird girls that are dressed in, like, these latex clothes, and they seem to be kind of out there. And I think it's set in the 70s. I think it's set in the 70s. I might be wrong. Um... But they're aliens. They're aliens. And they're kind of messed up. Like, there's some pretty interesting visual, um, what would you call it? Elasticity, I guess, going on with some of these characters. Elle Fanning is uh, one of the alien girls. She wants to run away with them. She wants to stay on Earth. And it looks interesting. It looks like it has potential. This film's actually been out in England, I believe, or the UK, for a little bit. And I know it got mediocre reception over there. Not great, not terrible. But I'm interested to see... Uh, it when it comes to the states uh, coming from Lionsgate I believe because it just looks like a regardless of whether or not it's any good it looks like a very interesting and unique film and I'm always willing to welcome stateside a unique film especially one that has a little bit of British humor to it and speaking of British humor we have a third ladies and gentlemen third Johnny English film Johnny English Strikes Back I don't know what the plot of this is you can kind of glean something from the trailer, like uh, Johnny English is called back out of retirement because they've stolen the names of all of the agents of MI6, which is such a that's such a bland plot that's been done so many times in so many different spy movies that I really hope that they don't that that's not the main plot. Um, but for those who are unfamiliar, Johnny English is a parody spy character created by Rowan Atkinson, much more well known uh, as Mr. Bean. I really hope this movie is good. And I say that because the previous Johnny English movie, Johnny English Returns, was not. It was very mediocre. It wasn't bad. It was just very much the same thing. The like, now the spy is old, blah, 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 kind of plot. And I really hope that this is good because the original Johnny English is a fun, enjoyable, not great, but enjoyable spy film. And I hope that this one can at least be funny can at least be enjoyable. There's a few pretty good gags. There's a great gag towards the end of the trailer that got a pretty decent chuckle out of me. Um, and there's jokes about the French, of course, because it's an English film. So, like, there looks like the potential of a lot of enjoyable things in this film if the comedy is executed well. Because it's it's difficult to judge a comedy based on its trailer because you don't want to give away all the jokes, but you also want to give away jokes that are good enough to let the audience know, oh, this is funny enough for me to spend my time with this. But at the same time, there's that balance of don't give away all the best jokes. So this is one that we'll just have to wait and see how it ends up. Next on the list, The First Purge. Now here's here's a little bit of insight into my head. I don't hate The Purge films. I find them to be aggressively mediocre. 
And here's what I mean by that. I think the concept of the purge makes for a great satire. I think it could make a great satirical horror film about uh, capitalist society and commercialism and consumerism and just that concept of, like, the evil within us all. I think the idea of The Purge could make for a great satire. And I think the first movie kind of got into that, but not even that much. It got into it maybe, like, a quarter of the potential that it had, and then the rest of the films just abandoned it. They went for the gleeful, like, neon, kind of dirty, gritty uh, portrayals of The Purge, they got into a little bit of a political aspect in the very end of the third one, or in the in the third one. And the first Purge has a great concept. Again, coming back to these films have great concepts. The first Purge is a film about the first Purge, how it came to be, the people behind it, the people who thought, you know what, this is a good enough idea for us to do this. Let's do this. And the thought process behind that and how people reacted to the first purge. And the trailer shows some really intriguing ideas with people just going, some people were just shrugging it off. Like, no, you know what? Just forget it. No one's going to take this seriously. It's not worth it to even give this a piece of our mind. While other people were taking it very seriously. But that's the thing. These films are all concept. Nothing in the trailers shows anything really enjoyable. Nothing in the films are really enjoyable beyond the basic concept. And the trailer for The First Purge seems to be just more of that. Just more of a wasted concept. Wasted potential. Nothing about the trailer stands out aside from the concept. Yes, there's a little bit of an interesting idea with them poking the political fire. Um, If anyone's seen the poster, the official poster for the film, or at least the first one, it was a blank white background with a bright red hat bright red ball cap with white lettering embroidered on it that said the first purge very clearly poking the the belly of the political undertones of what could be in this film but i don't think that it's going to be worth it because they're not going to commit to it they're going to have those political ideas in there they're going to have those satirical ideas in there just as very brief overtones And they're not going to dive into them because they're going to get in the way of the gleeful torture porn-esque horror. And I know they're not going to do that because they've never done it. Because these things pop up in every trailer for the Purge films and none of them are ever taken advantage of. So why would they start now with the fourth film when they know their people are guaranteed to come in and pour money into this series? Sorry about my little rant about the Purge films. Um, but that's, it's my honest opinion, and it's, I'm, it's only confirmed by this aggressively mediocre trailer. Um, next on the list, The Meg. Now, here's a film where if you had described the very concept to me, I would have laughed in your face. Jason Statham is a scientist in an underground, underwater facility studying sea life and they come across a megalodon a huge prehistoric shark that apparently was not extinct because there's one that's attacking their facility and attacking the beach and they gotta stop them and i i i can't describe why i like this trailer i really can't i can attempt to but it's one of those things where i i think it comes down to tone um If you watch the trailer, it doesn't go for the, like, intense, brooding action music. Um, If you watch the trailer, it uses 
the song oh crap what song does it use hold on i'm going to i'm i'm googling it while i uh i'm googling it while i uh continue to talk but there's just something about the goofy tone of this trailer that it, it just makes it look like a lot of fun like it makes it look like they're clearly not taking themselves seriously and they're clearly um they they know what people are thinking when they walk into this film and they want to deliver it, but they also want to deliver it with a little bit of a wink and a nod. Again, the film could be bad. The film could be very bad. The film could be the absolute opposite of what the trailer is showing. But if they keep that kind of satirical wink and a nod aspect that the trailer seems to be showing off, then I think it could have potential. You got a great cast, Jason Statham, Ruby Rose, who I will see anything I'll see anything she's in. She was in the last Triple X movie, and I saw that one because of her. Uh, Rain Wilson is in it. it. It looks like just a great bonkers time. And the thing that ultimately confirms that for me is the fact that the trailer music they use is Beyond the Sea. Like, somewhere, do-do-do, Beyond the Sea. Like that. They layer that song over, not a remix, just that song over scenes of the shark, like, attacking boats, like, jumping out of the water, attacking civilians in the water. Like, that's such a bizarre contrast of tone that it clearly had to be intentional, and it clearly shows that they know what they're doing in terms of tone, in terms of what this film is, and that, that, that's great. That sounds awesome. That sounds great. That's exactly what I want a big, stupid monster movie like this to be, and I think that's a really good idea, and I'm, I'm really glad that it seems like they're doing this, and I look forward to this film because of it. Plus the fact that it's based on a book, like, you don't typically see a lot of monster movies based on books. And the fact that it is based on a book gives me a little bit more hope. Like, I don't know what it is, just the fact that someone took the time to write, like, a 700 or 500-page story about this creature gives me a little bit more hope. So, who knows? I, it, it looks like it has potential. It definitely grabbed me with the tone, so hopefully it'll be good. And the very last trailer that I want to talk about, Anyone out there who's paid even a lick of attention to these podcasts and the trailers coming out knows exactly where this is going solo. We got the first full-length trailer for Solo, a Star Wars story. And I'm going to be completely honest. I'm, I might be recapping some of my thoughts from the very first episode of the podcast where we talked about the teaser trailer that came out during the Super Bowl. I'm going to be honest. My feelings on this film are kind of mixed. I was really looking forward to Phil Lord and Chris Miller's take on the story and on this world and the fact that they were booted from the film for not sticking to the script, which I think is BS because what else are you going to get when you have people who directed 21 Jump Street? Of course they're going to improv. Of course they're going to divulge from the script and replaced with a director that I don't hate but I consider to be just fine in Ron Howard. This trailer gives me hope. This trailer shows me what I wanted the first trailer to see. It shows me a fun time in the dark, seedy underbelly of Star Wars. It shows me new, fun characters that I wanted to see. It has a great line from Harrison Thorne's character where he says, let me give you a little bit of advice. If you expect everyone to betray, to betray you, you will never be disappointed. And that's a great line, especially if you know the story of Han Solo. Let, uh, Lando eventually betrays him. He betrays him before the original trilogy. He betrays him in the middle of the original trilogy. And that's such a great line to fit into this character's world because it's really true. It's true to the story of Han Solo. Whether you're reading the extended universe books, whether you're reading 
the original trilogy's books, watching the original trilogy's films, like, this is such a great angle to take to this character. And I kind of wanted it to be a little bit darker, a little bit seedier, like, kind of give me that sense of, like, oh, wretched hive of scum and villainy. Like, I wanted it to be that kind of a vibe. And it seems like it's only kind of there, but there's some great lines, there's some great banter back and forth, there's some great shots, what looks like great character moments. I did the awkwardness of Alden Einreich's uh, version of Solo that was in the teaser trailer isn't there anymore. I see a much more confident, um, much more still boyish, still trying to figure out what exactly he's doing um, version of this character that does not have the awkwardness that was shown in the first trailer. The best line in the entire trailer is the fact that uh, he's flying the Falcon and Chewie flips the switch and he goes, ah, since when do you know how to fly? And Chewie grunts at him and he goes, 190 years old? You look great! And just that kind of banter between the two of them, the fact that that banter still exists in this trailer and is still good gives me a huge amount of hope for this film and what it can be and what it will eventually be. And that's that's it for the trailers this week. Um, but, of course, we still got plenty, plenty more to go into. Um, and I, I think it's going to be a good bit of information to talk about. And we're going to talk about it now because we're going to jump right into the small potatoes. Alrighty, first on the list for the small potatoes, a long in development film might be coming to reality very, very shortly. And of course, by that I mean Bill and Ted 3. Um, according to uh, Reeves and Winter, or Keanu Reeves and Alex Winter, the original Bill and Ted, they said that they're closer than ever to making the third film happen. With a script titled Bill and Ed Face the Music from the original writers of the films. Uh, this is from USA Today. Um, uh, this is from USA Today. Chris Matheson states, you're not, you're told you're going to save the world and now you're 50 and you haven't done it. Now they're married and it affects their marriages. It affects their relationships with their kids. It affects their everything. Um, talking about the end of, of course, Bill and Ted's excellent adventure when the future, when, uh, Rufus played by George Carlin tells them that they are going to write music that would turn the world into a utopia. Well, that still hasn't happened yet. That's a really interesting idea for a film because that's you directly reference that at the end of the second film, and it still hasn't happened yet. Um, Alex Winter uh, says uh, there's certain comparisons. A rock band that never goes to the place it thought it was going to get to. Having that moment in their life of going, do we try to get there or do we give up on the dream? So it sounds like despite the fact that while I will agree, there's nothing really necessary about a third Bill and Ted movie. It makes me happy that they're making it with this kind of an angle. Jumping off of something that was originally implied in one of the previous films. with The original writers, the original cast, it sounds like they're going for that original vibe. Keanu Reeves uh, said, I love the character so much. And you can't go wrong with be excellent to each other and party on. I mean, it might actually be the beginning, one of the first examples of contemporary modern apocalyptic art. Um, referring to the first film, of course. And just that idea of such brotherly love and friendship, the, the fact that they might be returning to something that pure and that amazing gives me hope for a potential Bill and Ted 3. 
especially given the cast and crew returning to it. And it makes me happy. It, it, it um, I think it's a great angle to take. And if they were going to make a Bill and Ted 3, I would want them to do it this way. Um, next on the to-do list, Deadpool 2 has a very interesting new marketing gimmick. Now, originally I was just going to talk about one particular aspect of the story, but ever since uh, we collected the story, something else has come out, so I will kind of lump them into two. Um, if you go to Deadpool Core, that's D-E-A-D-P-O-O-L-C-O-R-E.com, you can find a link to sign up for the Deadpool Core, the superhero team that's supposed to be featured in Deadpool 2, where you can sign up for their newsletter, take a look at some wonderful pictures of Deadpool and the entire members of the crew in wonderful hand-knit sweaters, and download the Deadpool 2 coloring pages, so you can, as the website puts it, DPIY, Deadpool it yourself. And it, like, what is, like... I love the fact that Deadpool 2 was like, hey, you know what's great marketing? Coloring pages. Because while on the outside you think that's such a stupid idea, people are talking about it. People are, and that's, that means it's good marketing. It doesn't matter what it is. If people are talking about it, your marketing has done its job. And this absolutely has done its job. Um, and the entire Deadpool 2 marketing campaign has done such a wonderful job. Not only in keeping audiences intrigued, while hiding the stories to not give so much away in the trailers. But just, like, the the first trailer was a freaking short before Logan that everyone expected, and then a Bob Ross tribute? Like, this this is genius. This is absolutely hysterical. I, I can't wait for this film. I can't wait for this to be made. And ideas like this coloring page, just think, it's such a small concept, but the fact that they want to do that makes me so happy for this film, makes me so excited for this movie. In addition to the other marketing gimmick that I wanted to bring up, the fact that they're auctioning off, if you go to omaze, O-M-A-Z-E dot com slash Deadpool, you can enter for a chance to win some of the film's actual like marketing and merchandising swag, in addition to a chance to win a pink... Deadpool suit to help support cancer, or as Deadpool refers to it, F cancer, with a delightful little, like, it's fcancer.com, I think, something like that, and it's, like, on the commercial, it's spelled with an F, and then they make a U and a C and a K out of the, um, the uh, out of a sideways pink ribbon for breast cancer awareness, and that's a great concept, because who wouldn't want to enter for a chance to win a Deadpool suit, but also... Dead, the first Deadpool in the plot, it's about cancer. There's cancer involved in the plot. So why wouldn't you decide, hey, let's take this character that has an actual relationship with cancer and do some good with it. Help try and prevent breast cancer. Like, that's such a genius idea. Why didn't they do it before? I don't know. I'm glad they're doing it now, though, because it's absolutely perfect. Um, next on the list, hey, uh, boys and girls. Did you grow up in the 90s like me? Did you uh, sit in front of the television and wait every week to hear the burr, 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 and to see Steve walk in? Well, guess what? Your kids might get a chance to watch that too because Nickelodeon is bringing back Blue's Clues. Um, according to this Entertainment Weekly article, um, not only are they bringing it back, they, you could be the host. You could be the host of Blue's Clues. The next Blue's Clues. Um, uh, according to this, if you're 18 years or older, Nickelodeon is seeking women and men of any ethnicity who can play 18 to 25 years old. You can register for an audition slot 
um, on the event page for this. And casting calls are being held Saturday, April 14th in Burbank, California. That's only two days from the time that I'm recording this episode. Um, the casting call notes that the perfect host has a comedic background, a natural connection with the camera, and is someone who will empower the home viewer to feel important, respected, and smart. It will also add that playing the guitar, singing, and juggling are all also a plus. I'm really intrigued to see how these auditions go, to see who becomes the next Steve or uh, Joe or what, whoever. And it, it's just such a cool idea that, of course, if you're going to bring back Blue's Clues and you want to keep that kind of a connection... Why not look for an unknown? Why not look for an independent? You could potentially jumpstart someone's career with this, and you can get that kind of raw, like, just genuine pureness that you wouldn't normally get. Um, Also, just the fact that, like, Blue's Clues is coming back, guys. Like, Blue's Clues is coming back. Um, I hope that because this is coming back, this means that potentially I can buy the complete series of the original Blue's Clues on Blu-ray or on DVD, because I would love to own that, or at least a Blu-ray copy of Blue's Big Musical Movie, like, dude, there's DVD copies of Blue's Big Musical movie that go for, like, 75 bucks on Amazon. That's insane. I want a copy of that movie, though, but that's insane. Like, that's... Wow. That's insane. Um, next on our list... So, for, for those unfamiliar, Hasbro is a big manufacturer of toys, I don't know who wouldn't know that, but just for those unfamiliar, I'm going to put that out there. And Hasbro recently launched a site called HasLab, H-A-S-L-A-B. And HasLab basically exists to pitch ideas for toys. And this kind of makes sense, but it gets into a problem, which I'm going to go into a little bit further with this particular news story. And this particular news story is the fact that they put an idea up there for... A Jabba the Hutt sail barge from uh, uh, Return of the Jedi. Sorry, I I almost said Revenge of the Jedi. That would have been completely wrong. From Return of the Jedi. And this thing is four feet long. It's 15 inches wide. It's 17 inches tall. Um, It has a almost four-inch scale Jabba the Hutt. There's a 64-page book detailing the making of the product that will be included with the product. Um, Anyone who backs it on uh, HasLab has the opportunity to get it shipped to them by February 28th, 2019. Um, And this is a cool idea, but it makes me kind of upset because of the fact that this is a product that's going to be crowdfunded And people are basically saying... So it's not going to be crowdfunded in the sense of something like Kickstarter where there's tiers. Like, you can pay this much and get this, pay this much and get this. This is, hey, you have to go onto our site and say, I'm going to buy this toy. And basically pay for the toy almost a year before it's being made. And that's not even bringing into the fact if the toy's delayed or anything like that. For $500, granted, this is literally probably the biggest Star Wars toy ever made... But the fact that it's being made by Hasbro, and yet they, like, it's being made by one of the largest toy manufacturers in the world, and yet they still need, or they still feel the need to go out and ask people for money before it's even made in order to make it? What's going on behind the scenes, Hasbro? 
how do you guys not have enough money to commit to this? Clearly, people are going to buy it. And kind of, uh, it sounds cynical for me to say this, especially as a fan, but of course people are going to buy it. It's a Star Wars toy. It's the biggest Star Wars toy ever made. Of course people are going to buy it. No shit people are going to buy it. And just the fact that that still means they feel the need to go in and try and, like, I don't know. It just feels kind of cynical. feels kind of crappy to me. Like, you would think that they would have enough faith in their market and their audience that they would just put the thing out there. Just make it and put it out there without having the need to ask for people for money prior to. And I know Kickstarter is a thing that exists. But this is very different. This is a previously established, one of the largest toy manufacturers in the world who still apparently can't put forth the money to make a product this ambitious. If you can't put forth the money, don't make the product. It's as simple as that. It feels shady when a company... Like, like, think about it like this. If Warner Brothers went to Kickstarter and said, Hey guys, we need your help to fund the next uh, DC like superhero movie. That would feel kind of crappy. Because you're like, hey Warner Brothers, do you not have enough faith that this thing would sell? Are you just trying to even your profits? Do you not have enough faith in your audience? What's the deal? You should be able to afford this. And Hasbro should be able to afford this without the need to put out a crowdfunding campaign. It, it just, it, it feels a little yucky. It feels a little, like, cynical. It, fe- it feels, there's just something about it that I don't like. It just makes my skin crawl a little bit. Um, so, sorry about that. Uh, bringing it back a little bit. Next thing on our list, um, I, I know we previously talked about Quentin Tarantino's potential of making a Star Trek film. Uh, well, now, Simon Pegg, um, in... He was recently on a podcast called Happy, Sad, Confused, um, where I believe he talked a little bit about Ready Player One, talked about the Star Trek movies, talked about Baby Driver a little bit because he knows Edgar Wright very well, as anyone who's seen Shaun of the Dead, Hot Fuzz, or The World's End will know. And uh, he opened up about Quentin Tarantino's potential um, uh, Star Trek film. And uh, he said, uh, first of all, he brought up some of the fact that uh, he was disappointed in Beyond's marketing. He didn't think Star Trek Beyond was marketed very well, uh, which he would, of course, have a much bigger say in given the fact that he produced and wrote. I know he wrote, I believe he produced Star Trek Beyond. And Star Trek Beyond was extremely well-received by fans, especially after a somewhat disappointing Star Trek Into Darkness. Um, Beyond was extremely well-received by fans because a lot of people thought that it got back to what Star Trek means. Like, what it what it means as a show it get the boots on the ground on the planet it's not just about one character it's about the whole crew all interacting with each other it's about a light-hearted tone and that's what beyond delivered and into darkness really didn't deliver that while he's on the podcast he opened up um about this uh uh while beyond drew strong reviews it proved to be a box office disappointment some believe that this was partly uh due to viewer disappointment in star trek into darkness Uh, People were disappointed with the previous film, didn't want to come and see the next film because they were disappointed in it. Um, While Simon Pegg recently cited the film's lackluster marketing. This is a direct quote from him. It was a big year for Star Trek. It was the 50th anniversary, and it felt like that was not ever embraced. I think sometimes people get scared of the Star Trek fan base as being a kind of closed shop. And if we were to mention Star Trek in some way, it would somehow turn all the other people who hadn't seen Star Trek off. I don't know. It just felt like an odd thing to do. 
I think the person responsible for that campaign is not there anymore. Um, and then he talks directly about uh, the potential of Quentin Tarantino's um, Star Trek movie. He says, I don't think Quentin is going to direct it because he's got his California movie, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, to do, and then I think he's only doing one more film after that. And I doubt, I don't think he could get around to directing a Star Trek in two to three years. Um, Tarantino has mentioned that he directly wanted to adapt uh, an episode from some of the series. He specifically mentioned the original series episode, The City on the Edge of Forever. Um, And he also mentioned... uh, Crap, I can't think of the other episode he mentioned. Um, But Simon Pegg brings up an excellent point that even someone like me who wants Tarantino to direct a Star Trek film, because I think it would be good for the franchise, I think it would be good to see what he tackled, he brings up a good point in the fact that Quentin Tarantino has multiple times said he only wants to direct 10 films. He's not going to do more than 10. And Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, his next movie coming out about the Manson family is his ninth film. And I just... As much as I would love to see Tarantino tackle a Star Trek film, and as much as I think Tarantino would love to tackle a Star Trek film, I don't think he's going to spend his 10th and last film doing a big studio picture. It just doesn't seem like something he would do. Now, that being said, if Tarantino really wanted to surprise us all and really wanted to mess with us all, I think doing a big studio film would be exactly the way to do that. But, I don't know, I just don't... I, I, I got to agree with... Simon Pegg, now that I'm now looking at it from these points that he's brought up, I don't think it's very likely. Uh, as much as I would like it to happen, maybe Tarantino as a producer, or maybe as a writer, but as a director, I, I don't know, man. I just don't see it happening. Um, next piece of news. Uh, it, this one's kind of... There's not really a lot of news, quote-unquote, around this. I just think it's a funny story. Um, so, Disney California Adventure, one of the Uh, parks at uh, Disneyland in California is expanding to include more Marvel content, as of course they would. Why would you not? Since you now own most of 20th Century Fox and Marvel, you now have access to basically every Marvel license ever. Um, And they want to expand Disney California Adventure to include more Marvel superheroes. They just can't legally call it Marvel Land, or just can't um, specifically... Uh, It says here in the article, this is from the Los Angeles Times, um, but don't expect the Walt Disney Company's latest theme park attraction to be called Marvel Land, a title that would capture the wide cast of warriors in the comic publisher's universe, and it's based on fine print. Marvel Entertainment was purchased by Disney in 2009, but still must follow licensing agreements with other movie studios, as well as Disney's biggest theme park rival, Universal Studios, that impose limits on the Burbank Media and Entertainment Company's intellectual property rights. Specifically, they prohibit Disney from using a few specific Marvel characters in Disney theme parks east of the Mississippi River and ban the Mouse House from using the word Marvel in the title of any theme park land. So, technically, and these were all drawn up long before any of these, uh, the Marvel Cinematic Universe, really, there was any big successful superhero films besides some of the Batman films and some of the Superman films, and they certainly did not make the money that they now make. Um, like, this this is insane. The fact that Disney legally cannot use the name Marvel to advertise their theme parks or land in their theme parks is hysterical to me. 
given the fact that you would think they would be able to, but it's just based on fine print from Universal, and it's based on fine print from a lot of stuff, especially given the fact that this is such a huge cash cow for Disney, like Black Panther, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2, and Thor Ragnarok all together grossed over $3 billion worldwide. That's not even counting Homecoming. Like, the, the, the Marvel movies are such an insane source of revenue for Disney, it's kind of crazy that they can't use the word Marvel to advertise their lands. I'm sure they're going to put something in the advertising like, it's marvelous, or something like that. But, I don't know. It, it's just funny to me. Maybe something related to the Avengers, they could call it Avengers Land, or something like that. Although that sounds kind of cheesy and kind of stupid. Um, but, I don't know. It's just amusing to me that they can't do that. It, it's just a a, a a funny little quirk of fine print. Um... And next, the last in our list of small potatoes, which will kind of tie into one of our big news pieces. Um, last time we talked about how Millie Bobby Brown had not yet, her salary had not yet been announced for Stranger Things Season 3, which seemed odd to some people given the fact that everyone else's salary had been announced and everyone else's salary had been talked about. Um, for the entirety of Season 3, this is not per episode, God, this is not per episode, but for the entirety of Season 3, Millie Bobby Brown will make $3.15 million. She will be ranked up there with uh, the highest paid, the A-tier stars, which as far as we know at this point in time, that's only Winona Ryder and David Harbour. Um, That's an almost $3 million raise from what she was making uh, previously. That's pure insanity. Like, I love Millie Bobby Brown. She definitely deserves it. She's a phenomenal actress, and she's a wonderful person. And she, hopefully, she seems like one of those child stars that's not going to come out of this completely screwed up. But that's still an insane amount of money for, like, 10 episodes of television. For, like, a 14-year-old. That's insane. I mean, there's not really much else to talk about this, but, like, that's insanity. Like, wow. Wow. <laughs> wow like i'm i really genuinely don't know what else to say on it i'm just kind of it, it's insanity um and on that note uh we're gonna go ahead and jump into uh two pretty huge stories um that have happened recently and uh, because this is the big news and our big news is starting with um This is kind of a two-part news story. Um, We'll tackle one part first and then kind of a response to the first part after. Um, The Stranger Things creators are being sued. This is not an accusation. This is not someone accusing them of something. They are being sued. They're being sued for allegedly stealing concepts for the Netflix show. This is coming from The Hollywood Reporter. Um, Charlie Kessler says he pitched the idea for Stranger Things to Matt and Ross Duffer at a party in 2014. Stranger Things creators Matt and Ross Duffer are being sued for allegedly stealing the idea for their hit Netflix series from Charlie Kessler. He's suing them because he claimed he pitched them his concept for a sci-fi story set near an abandoned military base during a party at the 2014 Tribeca Film Festival. Kessler says Stranger Things is based on his short film Montuac and a feature film script called, called The Montuac Project, both of which are set in the New York City of the same name, which he says is home to various urban legends and paranormal and conspiracy theories. Um, His attorney, Michael Kernan, argues that the 2014 party pitch created an implied in-fact contract pursuant to well-established industry norms, basically like a handshake deal. 
Like, you guys understand that I'm pitching this to you, but it's my idea. I understand that I'm pitching it to you, but it's my idea. Like a, like a verbal contract. This is fairly routine for these kinds of industry parties. Um, these things happen all the time, whether they're talks with actors, actresses, directors, writers, studio heads. It's, it's fairly normal. Um, uh, his uh, Kernan... Kessler's attorney states, after the massive success of Stranger Things, the defendants have made huge sums of money by producing the series based on the plaintiff's concepts. Mr. Kessler, and, um, oop, jumped ahead a little bit. Uh, the Duffers responded, uh, their attorney, specifically Alex Koner, responded with, Mr. Kessler's claim is completely meritless. He has no connection to the creation or development of Stranger Things. The Duffer brothers have never seen Mr. Kessler's short film nor discussed any project with him. This is just an attempt to profit from other people's creativity and hard work. Um, and this, this came out like a day after the previous story we just talked about with Millie Bobby Brown, her raise. This is coming out just around the time of huge news and huge money being pumped into the series from Netflix. So of course, if there's any opportunity for this guy, whether he's right or he's making this up, of course he's going to jump at it right now because there's people making millions of dollars right now. Like actors making millions of dollars for this series, not even bringing into account licensing, merchandising, DVD, Blu-ray sales. Like, this is insanity. Um, Kessler is seeking an injunction ordering the Duffers to stop using his concepts and to destroy all materials based on those concepts, as well as restitution, lost profits, and punitive damages. Uh, Netflix declined to comment because, of course, they did. Why would they? Um, And this is also kind of huge because if this guy's correct and if he uh, succeeds, he's basically asking, hey, Get rid of Stranger Things. Give me the money from it and trash it. D- like, this could mean that potential, like, the Blu-rays are destroyed, the DVDs are destroyed, it wouldn't be available viewed on Netflix. I- I- at least I'm, I think. I'm not 100% if that's something the plaintiff would want, but that sounds kind of like what he's going for, and that's a scary thought. That's kind of terrifying. Um, and that's kind of huge. So I mentioned that this is part one of a two-part story, and I say it's two-part because shortly after this, um, an article came out. This is not by The Hollywood Report. This is by HitFix. Um, the Duffer Brothers are pushing back hard against accusations that their massive hit Netflix series, Stranger Things, was stolen from another filmmaker. Charlie Kessler fil- fi- bleh, filled a lawsuit claiming Matt and Ross Duffer allegedly took the ideas he pitched to them during a Tribeca Film Festival party in 2014 and used them to create their show. Kessler pointed to the fact that the Stranger Things development title was Montuac, the same name as a short film made by Kessler in 2012, as point the Duffer Brothers plagiarized him. However, emails from the Duffer Brothers shared with TMZ showed that the duo was developing Stranger Things and referring to it as Montuac as far back as November 2010, four years before Kessler ran into them at the Tribeca Film Festival and two years before his short film came out. Montuac isn't a name that's all exactly that original either, considering that the Montuac Project is a well-known conspiracy theory that's floating around, that's been floating around for nearly 40 years. Um, Plus, a Google document dated October 4th, 2013, is what the Duffer Brothers would eventually use as the premise for Stranger Things. Benny leaves his friend Elliot's house. A bunch of kids are there eating pizza, Dungeons and Dragons. Benny leaves on a bike, hears voices, goes into a strange world, and is taken by some evil force. Benny would eventually be renamed Will, uh, as uh, pointed out in the Google document. It says, Benny, parentheses, renamed Will for the show, close parentheses. And then, two emails from 2014 in February and April, both before 
Kessler allegedly met them at the Tribeca Film Festival and pitched this idea to them. Uh, two more emails prior to that event lay out the vision for the show. It reads, set in a 1980s Long Island with a vintage Stephen King feel. The April 4th email mentions doing location scouting in Montuac. Um, Deffer Brothers lawyer stated these documents prove that Mr. Kethler has absolutely nothing to do with the creation of the Stranger Things show. The Deffer Brothers were developing their project years before he claims to have met them. Um, so, oh crap, I apologize, the, the humming from the air vent just got a little bit louder. I apologize for that, I'll try and do the best I can with that. Um, sorry about that. But basically, um, the fact of the matter is the fact that while, yes, he may have met them, and yes, he may have brought these concepts up to them, there's still just, I mean, there's very little, it's it's purely coincidence. It's purely coincidence that um, they met when they did. It's purely coincidence that his project happened to have the name Montuek. It, it's all just a purely coincidental thing. And I don't know what's going to happen with this, whether he's going to pull his lawsuit out, what's going to happen, but it, it's just a it's just an idea of just pure coincidence. Now, another big story, our second big story for this week, is another potential story of big coincidence, and one that, I don't know, man, we're just going to have to see how this goes. So, recently, Dan Schneider was fired from Nickelodeon. For those who are unaware, Dan Schneider is a mega producer for Nickelodeon who's created shows such as iCarly, Drake and Josh, Sam and Cat, The Amanda Show. He's worked on all that. He's worked on Victorious, Henry Danger. Basically, if you've seen a crappy or good live-action sitcom on Nickelodeon, chances are Dan Schneider's had something to do with it. And his recent firing has meant that a lot of allegations and a lot of rumors about him have come to the public light. And what I mean by allegations and what I mean by rumors against him is that there's been some pretty kind of shady stuff thrown at him in past years. Specifically, allegations of just him being extremely creepy around his young castmates. Um, and in regards to why Nickelodeon wouldn't do anything about this, it's kind of understandable once you get into the nitty-gritty of the details. Um, but first, to cover some of those uh, allegations and some of those references um there was a twitter thread posted a while ago um i i can't think of the link or the username off the top of my head but if you search dan schneider creepy twitter thread you're almost guaranteed to find it almost immediately um it it talked about the fact that so many of the jokes in his shows are ridiculously over sexualized the characters are ridiculously over sexualized many of the female characters are wearing short skirts and outfits that are extremely revealing despite their young ages and many times there's uh episodes and segments that will focus on them dancing in a very suggestive way to a pop song just thrown into the episode for good measure um the a particular joke that while i was looking through this thread stood out to me is from the television show victorious where one character walked up to Victoria Justice's character and said, Hey, Victoria, want to know my two favorite things about you? She looks down at her breasts, gasps, and slaps him. This is on a children's show. A children's show. And that's not even really remotely appropriate. 
And yes, it's implied. Nothing is said. It's not like the camera points at her boobs. But that's a pretty heavy implication for this kind of a joke. Um, There's also just really kind of creepy and weird Facebook posts and Twitter posts that he would make during the production of his shows. Um, There was a Twitter post from a few years ago where he said, Here's a pic. Carly tickles Sam's very unusual toes. If you have a moment, will you please name Sam's toes for us? And there's a lot of stuff being thrown around about how he'll, like, has pictures of his female star's feet. Just he has them for some reason. There's a lot of really weird, creepy stuff with feet in his shows that's really only just now come into hindsight. And one of those things that's like, well, wow, I can't believe we didn't notice this before. Like, another Facebook post, a Facebook post in promotion for an episode of iCarly said, and I quote, Who wants to see Jeanette McCurdy's toes? I got plenty of pics to go around if you tune into the new iCarly episode, Eyeballs, this Friday on Nick. Why do you have pictures of your young female co-star's toes? Why are you willing to pass them around the internet? What? 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 Dude, what? And then there's also clips of him. Oh, thank goodness the the air vent went down. Sorry about that. There's um, clips from the website The Slap that he created with Nickelodeon in order to post, like, extra short little viral videos and bloopers from his various shows. Clips from The Slap of, hey, here's one of the stars of Victorious pouring ketchup on Victoria Justice's feet. You know, because it's lol random. Um, There's also videos of um, Ariana Grande, who, is it? I think it's her. Hold on, before I say that, I should probably, I should probably make sure I don't want to just jump into that and uh, assume that. Give me just a second to make sure that that's uh, who it is. Yeah, Ariana Grande. There's videos on the slap of Ariana Grande squeezing a potato. And that sounds kind of stupid, but she's squeezing it in such a way, and she's groaning and grunting and moaning about it in a very odd and uncomfortable way. That video that was on the slap was actually taken down by YouTube when it was posted on YouTube by the official slap YouTube uh, page. YouTube removed it because they said it was against the, the community guidelines. And then there's other videos of Ariana Grande, again, like, sucking on her toes on the slap. Like, this is ridiculous. This is so ridiculously unnecessary and creepy and weird and uncomfortable. And the fact that he specifically, like, if you look at videos and GIFs and just moments in some of his shows, some of these things are just so ridiculously over the top and uncomfortable. And... I I will admit, I watched iCarly when I was a kid. I watched Drake and Josh when I was a kid. And I will say this, going back and watching some of these shows, Drake and Josh, there's less of this in there. If you want to be really cynical about it, you could chalk it up to the fact that those were two teenage male co-stars, and he really didn't want to have anything to do with that, instead focusing on his young female co-stars like he did in his later years with shows like Sam and Cat, iCarly, Victorious. Um, And iCarly is still fairly light there's it's not entirely innocent because there's still some just general creepiness with that show but i don't know man it's just kind of uncomfortable and it's it's kind of unsettling 
And there's other evidence behind this as well. Um, there's a very long, and again, I will reiterate, these are all allegations. These are all, well, not even allegations. These are all rumors. None of this has been officially confirmed by anyone. None of the, he has not been sued. He has not been accused of anything by any of his female, uh, stars or any of his former stars. Um, uh, but there's just, there, there was a GameSpot forum thread from a while ago. And I know that's, that's not exactly a reputable thread, it's not exactly a reputable thing, but there's something specifically that it mentions. Um, uh, two things. Uh, specifically, um, uh, sorry, my brain just my brain just cut out for like two seconds. Um, there's two big things. First, um, Robert Downey Jr. Yes, that Robert Downey Jr. Um, has a statement about Dan Schneider, specifically on Crazy Days and Nights, where he said he's a monster, the worst predator alive, and if you wonder why no one will confront him or charge him, he's in charge of multiple hit shows for Nick, which rakes in oceans of money, tens of millions of dollars multiplied by many years and many shows, not to mention his merchandising royalties. So Viacom slash Nick warn him to cool it, then pay for his damn lawyers. That That's a pretty strong words coming from a pretty well-known actor. Um, I don't have a specific date that he said this, unfortunately. Um, but then there's also, there's a, a Reddit thread. Um, uh, there's a Reddit thread of, um, I'm, I'm very, very sorry. For some reason, my mind is just blanking, um, right now. I have the information in front of me, but I'm just having some moments of like brain farts and, and I apologize for that. Um, but there's a Reddit thread on, uh, r slash, uh, T I L, which is r slash today. I learned, um, and it's today. I learned how creepy Dan Schneider actually is posting a link back to the Twitter thread where someone in the comments claimed to be, um, one of the extras from one of his shows. I believe it was, uh, the Amanda show. Um, I was working as an extra on the Amanda show and after we were filming one day, I was done with my episodes. I didn't need to return. He offered to pay me an extra $100 if I came back to his office and let me tickle his feet. Or, and let him tickle my feet. What? What? Uh, again, rumors, allegations. This person has not publicly revealed themselves if this is true, but this is a lot of consistent, coherent information. It's not a lot of different people from different backgrounds. Well, it is a lot of different people from different backgrounds all coming together to say, to say the same thing. It's not the same person continuously saying the same thing over and over again. And it's just, it's really creepy. It's really bizarre. And it's kind of uncomfortable. And the last big thing about this that leads a lot of people to think that something is up behind the scenes at Nick that they're hiding is the fact that they recently chose, as I mentioned at the top of the story, they recently chose to part ways with Dan Schneider. Um, they said that they are not going to continue making shows with him or his production company, Schneider's Bakery, which is fine. That's understandable. All the time, people move apart all the time. Um, people uh, move away. Uh, but he was paid... Seven million dollars to leave. 
This is not something in his contract. This is not a, like, golden parachute. He didn't invest money. Well, he kind of invested money in Nickelodeon. But my point is, like, this is not a stipulation of his contract. It's not that they fired him in the middle of his contract. His contract was up, and they decided not to renew it and not to bring him back. And yet they still decided to pay him $7 million. That's insane and that is the big nail in the coffin that leads me to believe that something is up behind the scenes and that maybe there's some truth to some of these rumors and some of these allegations but at least for right now we won't know we won't be able to figure it out until someone comes forth i hope that someone comes forth not because i want anything bad to happen but just so that we have some closure and some clarity on this kind of thing because this is a huge set of rumors and with his recent departure from Nick this this set of rumors has garnered a lot it's picked up steam once again um uh that's the end of our big news for this episode only a few more things to mention and to tie up uh unfortunately there's two extremely notable deaths uh in the past two weeks that I want to go over and that I want to mention the first is Stephen Bochco, uh, who created Hill Street Blues, L.A. Law, NYPD Blue, he's passed away at the age of 74. Um, he passed away um, this past Sunday morning, surrounded by friends um, and his home. He was the creator of uh, so many extremely um, popular programs, such as Hill Street Blues, uh, L.A. Law, NYPD Blue. Uh, he worked on Doogie Howser, M.D., uh, the lesser-known show Cop Rock. Um, uh, former USA Today TV critic Robert Bianco um, noted after his death, if this is the golden age of television, Steve Bochco launched it and helped sustain it. Every great modern drama owes Hill Street a debt. Um, uh, he's uh, also helped to um, launch other big producers into making their own shows, including, da- including David E. Kelly, uh, who worked on The Practice and Big Little Lies. Um, um, David E. Kelly was a former Boston lawyer that he hired to help him work on L.A. Law in um, order to help make it a little bit more realistic. Um, he worked primarily on Basic Cable, working on shows like Murder in the First. He attended New York University and then the Carnegie Institute of Technology. Um, he started writing in the 60s, working on shows like Columbo, um, and then eventually he created Hill Street, um, and the show started winning Emmys, and it started to become a powerhouse for um, NBC, and it really started to like launch this kind of modern era of television dramas and television uh, procedurals that we see today. Um, he passed away at the age of 74, which is unfortunate, and we send his family our best. Um, the other big notable death is Asayo Takahara. Um, Asayo Takahata is one of the largest names in Japanese animation history. He's one of the founders of, um, Studio Ghibli. He's one of two founders. The other with, he founded Studio Ghibli with Hayao Miyazaki, who is another incredibly huge name in the Japanese animation world. Um, Asayo specifically, he directed, um, Grave of the Fireflies, which Grave of the Fireflies, side note, is a film that I I believe every person should see, whether you like Japanese animation or not, whether you like animation or not. Grave of the Fireflies is such an important and poignant and powerful and impactful war film 
it's unlike anything I've ever seen, and it's one of the few films that I myself I can I could barely get through it the first time, um, and I don't. It, it will be extremely difficult for me to ever watch it again, just due to the content in it and due to um, the messages and how powerful it is. Um, he unfortunately passed away at the age of eighty-two um, recently. He most recently directed Tale, the Tale of Princess Cayuga in two thousand thirteen. Um, he also worked on films such as Only Yesterday, The Little Norse Prince, Pom Poco, um, uh, Only Yesterday, which is, which recently got kind of a resurgence as it was one of the few films that Disney, uh, refused to dub in their original agreement with, uh, Studio Ghibli in the 90s, which stated that we will choose some of your films to bring over and dub in English as close to the original script as possible. They didn't want Only Yesterday because... They didn't like that the film mentioned menstruation, and they wanted to take that out, and they said no, because you said you would adapt our films as closely as possible, um, which is kind of ridiculous when you consider the fact that it's a coming-of-age story about a young female in her preteen years, so that's something that will probably be mentioned. Um, so that's kind of dumb, but whatever. Um, it just recently got an official English dub, with Dev Patel from Slumdog Millionaire and Daisy Ridley from uh, who plays Ray in the more recent Star Wars films, voicing in it, um, he was a uh, a absolutely wonderful creator. Um, he and Miyazaki have worked together for years. They've created some of the most beautiful um, animated films uh, to come out of Japan, both from both specifically from Ghibli and just animated films ever. Um, He will definitely be missed. I apologize if I'm uh, uh, stumbling over my words here. Studio Ghibli is a huge uh, influence on me, um, both for my love of animation and for my love of filmmaking in general, and specifically for my idea and my love that animation does not have to talk down to its audience. It does not have to be for children. It can be nice and it can be lighthearted, without being specifically aimed at children. It doesn't have to be dumb fart jokes to be for kids, and it also doesn't have to be crude and swear-filled to be for adults. Um, And no other company has proven that more than Studio Ghibli, and the fact that uh, we lost one of the founders of the studio who's directed arguably some of its most important films um, is heartbreaking, and he will be missed. Now, now that we've gotten that out of the way, a little bit of sadness. As always, um, we like to end our films. End our films. Wow, I apologize for that. As always, we like to end the podcast with a little bit of happy news, um, with some good news. And while this might not be necessarily news that everyone finds good or that everyone can relate to, I find it to be good news, and I know there's a small niche audience out there that will find it to be good news with me. It's my podcast, so shut up. It's good news to me. We're going to do it anyway. Um, re, uh, for those who are unfamiliar, THQ was a company that in the early 2000s held a lot of licenses to television shows, specifically licenses to television shows from Nickelodeon, and they would make video games based on their shows, games like SpongeBob SquarePants Battle for Bikini Bottom, Fairly Odd Parents Break Into Rules, The Tack and the Power of Juju Games, uh, Wild Thornberries Games, the Jimmy Neutron Games, etc., etc., etc. They would make games on a bunch of Nickelodeon television shows and movies. Um, in the early 2010s, they went bankrupt and a lot of their licenses were sold off, 
One company, Nordic Games, bought a lot of licenses to some of their early uh, works and games, some of their more low-profile games. A lot of their larger licenses got snatched up by bigger companies. So they uh, were there kind of taking the scraps, some of their smaller works that were still good games, but that no one really found the need to like really snatch at. Games like the De Blob series. Um, I believe they now also have the rights to the uh, Red Faction games. Um, and they're basically, they're continuing to put out these kinds of games. They're just still good in quality. They're bringing, they brought the De Blob series of games, 1 and 2, to PC, Switch, PS4, Xbox One, remastered in HD. They look gorgeous because all the games are based around color. And I highly recommend it. They're at a pretty cheap $20 price tag apiece. And they're, they're loads of fun. Uh, you will definitely enjoy them. Specifically, what we're referring to at this particular point is THQ Nordic, which Nordic Games renamed themselves to THQ Nordic to take advantage of the name because they now have the rights to it. And Nickelodeon are bringing back selected game titles from the past. So THQ Nordic is not being given the current license to Nickelodeon games. That, I believe, lies with Activision. But they are basically going to revive and bring back older games based on some of the older Nickelodeon franchises, such as Avatar The Last Airbender, Danny Phantom, Invader Zim, Jimmy Neutron, Rugrats, SpongeBob, Tag of the Power of Juju, Fairly Odd Parents, Wild Thornberries, etc. Specifically, they say that on-shelf availability will be announced in the coming months. This is why this is good news for me, because yet chalk it up to nostalgia, chalk it up to childhood, say whatever you want, But if I can walk into a GameStop and look on the shelf and buy a copy of SpongeBob SquarePants Battle for Bikini Bottom in HD for my Switch or for my PC, that is the greatest day of my entire life. I still have my PlayStation 2 copy of that game. I still have my Xbox copy of the original SpongeBob movie video game. I played the crap out of those games. I still play them to this day. They're amazing. They're legitimately really well-made 3D platformers that came in an era where we were supri- we were getting a lot of surprisingly quality licensed games. And I think in an era where a lot of licensed games are simple, oh, here's an app based on the movie, or here's a match three game, or, a, or an infinite runner, or a fighting game, it's, I, I hope they come back, and I hope people buy them, and I hope people like them, because, well, I don't think that they will, um, that they will, usher in a new era of licensed games. I think that it would be nice to have someone come in and say like, hey, look at this. Remember when licensed games were good and had effort put into them? Yeah, wouldn't that be nice? Um, And specifically, this makes me happy because um, this is from the THQ Nordic website. Um, Specifically, they mention these titles were popular when they were first released and we can't wait for fans around the world to rediscover their favorites. Um, Uh... Uh, Adrian Lower, VP of Digital Sales and Business Development America at THQ Nordic states, this one hits close to home. We are very proud of signing this agreement, which was originally executed by the former THQ Inc. We believe the combination of strong licenses and solid crisp gameplay was one of the THQ, was one of THQ Inc.'s trademark strategies. And we intend to continue this tradition. I am confident we chose one of the strongest partners for doing that. It's a perfect fit for our asset care strategy, bringing back fan favorites, continuing to support legacy games, and making them available on current and even next platforms, which really speaks to what this company has done recently with a lot of its acquisitions of THQ licenses and a lot of its games in general. It just tries to bring back 
quality games that people liked when they came out that still hold up and that people might might not be able to play to play nowadays whether it's because of lack of copies lack of consoles inavailability of the games maybe the games were ported to pc but they were crappy ports and people can't really play them on modern hardware um but this this just makes me happy this makes me happy like deep inside in my soul this makes me happy because this is this means that potentially like 10 or 12 years from now i could boot up my computer with like my kids sitting in my lap and go like hey you like playing mario you like playing video games the games that i've showed you well let me show you a game from my childhood that i really loved and the idea that i could potentially do that just makes my heart sore it it makes me happy and on that note that is going to do it for this episode of the real life again i apologize for the slight technical difficulties for the difference in mic and audio quality and for the absence of ray it's just everything decided to hit us at the same time this week but you know what we made through it we still turned out a quality episode and i think the people are still going to enjoy it um my name is jacob delandro i am the assistant arts and entertainment editor for the rotunda news magazine at longwood university you can find my reviews and my column the real life at the rotundaonline.com and navigate to the arts and entertainment section and look for any review titled the real life I do modern movie reviews, I do reviewed films titled The The Real Life Reviewed, and I also do informational pieces here and there, such as the Marvelous series, where I recount the history of Marvel Studios and its films leading up to the release of Infinity War. Um, I hope you all take care out there, I hope you're having a wonderful day, and I hope everybody just continues uh, to have a good time. Take care, I'll see you next time.